Welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective group of experienced M&A and post-merger integration professionals located in Europe, the UK, the US, and in Asia. We know each other professionally and personally, in fact, worked on many deals together. Uh, for more information on the individuals that you're hearing from, please go to our website. So this week's podcast is all about uh, M&A in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, recent uh, acquisitions that have been made, uh, announced, deals that have been announced. And we talk about um, the challenge of transition from fossil fuel to clean energy in within some of these companies. We talk about the strategy that some of the leadership are adopting uh, with regard to uh, their future state. We talk about the reaction of uh, shareholders and of customers in that process. Um, and we talk about the, the conflict that uh, perhaps government also faces in terms of the uh, green energy agenda um, against the need for uh, fuel security in the domestic marketplace. So, uh, welcome to the uh, latest Agile Guru podcast. And today we're talking in a more thematic sense about mergers and acquisitions, particularly in the sort of fossil fuel, oil and gas uh, sector, as to what's going on there. I know there have been a number of deals done. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by Abhi Pandey, as usual, um, uh, representing our North American branch, um, and uh, David Boyd, uh, my cohort colleague. Uh, from the UK, Sandy Paul's not available today, but we'll we'll get on with that. I'm sure we'll struggle on without him. So, uh, quick little sets of intros, probably quite good, useful to get a, um, a perspective from you both uh, in terms of what's going on in this sector, uh, why perhaps it's starting to become uh, a bit more interesting from an MA perspective. Abby, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, as both of you know, and some of the audience may, uh, I've spent the majority of my career. Uh, in energy broadly and energy investment banking broadly. Um, but specifically, much like many others in the industry, my work has migrated from traditional fossil fuel strategy work uh, and transactional work to renewables and uh, the energy transition broadly. But to some extent, this is interesting because it mimics what's happening in many of the country, uh, companies around the industry. And so I think that, you know, thematically, there are a couple of interesting things. One is you have the old generation fossil fuel companies trying to figure out existentially whether they buy in wholesale to the energy transition and invest towards it, which some have done. Others who basically take a perfectly rational view that they don't really know anything about renewables and they should just stick to their knitting and grow and become more efficient. And that's the best thing for their shareholders. So it's sort of the strategic decision. But then the second one, which I think certainly based on, you know, for the for the two of you might be interesting or more interesting, is what does that do to the culture of a company that starts out in one effective industry and decides to migrate to a very different type of industry and what does it do to the people and the culture and the organizations involved? And I think those two are certainly ones that we'd like to plumb today. Interesting. David Boyd, give me your early thoughts on, on what's going on here. Perhaps not early thoughts from me, but areas I'd like to discuss and the topics of interest. Uh, it starts with 
ethics. So there's obviously a lot of campaigning against fossil fuel companies, but I do believe there is such a thing as a good fossil fuel company, as in if we didn't have fossil fuels, we wouldn't be able to produce steel, we wouldn't have the lights on lots of countries. It is essential for society as it exists today. And and you you can't do fundamental change that way in 12 months' time. So there is such a thing as good, and therefore, actually, what does that mean? So, so that kind of gets me onto the, the M&A side of things. So you've got, obviously, fossil companies selling um their non-renewable assets actually you still want to make sure that people who are owning those assets are doing uh something you know ethical practices so so i do believe there's an investment case and how you how you manage the ethics there's a profitability side so there's so much volatility at the moment you know we, we read it's driven by russia and, and saudi arabia how that affects the business case and then it's un- underlying it all you've got massive regulatory change with goalposts moving and, and it also uh compounded by geopolitics how does that your view uh, change your view as a buyer in the sector. Interesting. Thank you, David. Um, I suppose my perspective on this, it, I just in doing some research, I find it fascinating the the challenges that a leadership team in this industry currently faces. Um, on the one hand, you know they are making the most extraordinary amount of money. Um, uh, it's interesting. There was a, a interview this morning with Gordon Brown, who's the ex-British Prime Minister, talking about reparations being targeted at companies, not at countries, just for the extraordinary level of profitability they'd achieved in the fossil fuel sector, running into trillions of dollars. Uh, and then that's where the focus should be, not just at governments, um, but it perhaps reflects this enormous profitability piece. You then got you know, a government demand- agenda around uh, domestic fuel security, um, given what happened last year, um, with uh, with the winter and and, and Ukraine, uh, which is also driving perhaps some of this domestic consolidation that's going on uh, across the organisation. And then you've also got government stepping back from some of its green promises, notably in the UK and also in Germany too, um, where uh, that seems to be a a reason for them to relook or maybe you know be less worried about what they're doing on the on the fossil fuel side. Uh, and then I think the best thing of all, and this is a bit of sort of classic bit of behavioural economics, which I think is fantastic, is that this perspective that that M and A certainly in North America is being driven by changes in the energy mix. I there are less dirty dirty fuels, um, and therefore if we start to move to in that direction, and that's obviously you know gas, um, um, you know obviously the renewable sector as well. Um, it, it, that, that that actually that starts to help on our on our journey to uh, persuade our shareholders that we are indeed good good corporate citizens. I, I noticed I was just delving into a bit of a um, a rabbit hole, and and one of the things that that was that sort of struck me as fat fitting into this into this profile as well is that um, there's been a move um, certainly on the eastern seaboard of the US to to buy much lighter fuel, not so much heavy crude anymore, um, uh, uh, on the perception that it's cleaner. Uh, and it takes less refining, it, t- it takes less effort, less effort. I mean, separately from that, it wasn't really mentioned in the article, but the reality was that they're buying heavy heavy uh, fuel from Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, uh, three countries that I suspect politically they'd quite like to get removed from a bit as well. So it is quite extraordinary how these things start to merge, right? We've we've got a bit of government interest, uh, and it starts gener- generating a, a sort of different driver um, to the to that uh, to that behaviour. So those are the things that I picked up on. Um, uh, in terms of what's going on, Abby, what um, 
Is this just a short-term thing? Is this, you know, if you were in that leadership role, are you saying, I'm just going to take the opportunity to go and spend some of this this cash pile that I've got because uh, I don't really want it to be taken away from me in the form of any further withholding, ta- any, any further taxes that are going to be charged? What, what's going on there? Let me, I think it's the general con- consensus in the industry is that the transition to, in response to climate change is really sort of the mother of all disruptions, if you will, right? And so one way to think about this that's relevant across multiple industries is think about Kodak when in the 80s. Kodak was making so much money on selling film and development and cameras. It was just a cash cow. However, you know, there was this emerging technology around digital film that they were slightly ignoring and didn't want to invest in. In fact, the early technologies around digital cameras originated at Kodak, but they didn't want to invest in it because they had so much, it would cannibalize so much of their existing infrastructure, making film, developing film. And you can imagine that similarly, In the energy industry, you have 150 years of technology and resources and educated people figuring out how to get fossil fuels from the ground, how to transport them and refine them and sell them. And suddenly comes along this energy transition and people are at really at a crossroads. They can either say, look, my shareholders want just want me to do what I do well. Somebody who's a foot doctor shouldn't suddenly decide they want to be an eye doctor um, without the skills, just because ophthalmology is suddenly very attractive and, and, and growing. You should just keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, if you can make a transition slowly, you do that. So some people have taken the view that we're just going to keep doing what they're doing. And I think this is accentuated by the, the thing, Ben, that you talked about, which is many, most people in the industry believe that there is a role for transitional fuels, natural gas, biofuels, cleaner cleaner fuels that are renewable, and that that transition will be 30 or 40 years. And so if you're a fossil fuel producer or distributor, you're better off focusing on those things. You're contributing to the solution, although not going all the way. Then there's a separate decision around this crossroads, which is what many others have taken, which is they've said, we'll do some of the transitional stuff, but really the future is in pure, clean energy, solar, wind, geothermal. And we're going to go full full hog into that and develop those capabilities. That is akin to Kodak deciding in the 80s that they're going to invest in digital film and become the leader and lock up the technology. And basically, now with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that they probably should have done that. But they, I think what Kodak did is they put their toe in the water on digital, but didn't go whole hog. They didn't certainly want to abandon all the cash they were generating. And, and so this is, but I feel like the industry over the last five or 10 years has faced this decision and each company has made different variants of this choice. Some have decided to stay in what they know how to do, even though they know that that's that may be transitionary and in the long run unsustainable. And others have basically said, I'm less interested in the transition. I'm going to go all the way to clean and really develop the skills and capabilities to do that. 
Fascinating. David, I was going to ask you a bit about the behavioural economics piece. The, the thing that I'm interested in is, and, and you all have a, a view on this, the thing that, you know, what seems to be happening, certainly at government level, is they're playing on this human tendency to, to discount the future or to be wildly optimistic about what the future might state with very little substance to that. Or, you know, in the same way that we don't really think about our, our pension requirements or the fact that we smoke as having an impact on, on future health. Um, um, it, it is, it's, it, so I suppose my, my question to you is, do you think that that there is a bit of, you know, inverted nudge going on there, which is basically they're saying, well, you know, we're going to respond to your immediate needs because that's what's going to get us re-elected, uh, conveniently ignoring the fact that the, the future state is, is is actually much more horrific than you could possibly imagine. Um, and a sort of second part question to that is that for the people who are really driving uh, our, our uh, movement towards renewable, which is the, the younger generation, are they somehow not as affected by that as, as perhaps the people of our age and stage are? What do you think? I don't know. It, it is a problem with democracy where we've got four-year election cycles and we've got a 40-year transition. Uh, and it affects capital projects that we spoke, talked about before, You know, railway investments, construction projects. It affects our transition to renewable energies. So how we get those kind of long-term changes driven through when we've got politicians optimising for the next four years and re-election is very tricky. Um, I think that's when you see these intergovernmental organisations, you know, led by the UN, um, playing a key role to try and keep everybody on track. And then hopefully there's there's an impetus there where people see that actually it's a long-term bad move to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah, interesting. Um, Abby, you were talking about, yeah, sorry, go, go ahead, Abby. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you mentioned the sort of cultural transitionary challenge at the start of your your intro to this. Um, and, it, you know, I think it's even more fundamental than that. I think this is something that companies potentially are facing into, which is not just how do we work um, in the workplace, how, what's our ways of working that we that we all subscribe to and agree to and, and feel that that is, that is a, a good place for us to be. It goes to a much more deep level and we've talked you know we've talked about purpose in the past on this uh, on this podcast and we will continue continue to do that I suspect. Um, I think there's a fundamental aspect to this which is you know does the purpose of this business meet? The values that I hold uh, as an organization, as an individual. And if it doesn't, then I'm just not going to come work for you guys, no matter how much we pay for it, pay me for, uh, for, for doing it. Um, I know, David, you've been involved in some of this uh, as well, but I, mean, I, I think that's, so I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really fundamental decision that um, our, you know, that generation are making about who they work for, what they do. Um, some of it's quite daft, right? So, um, and I'm you know, going to be quite specific about it. You know, um, Bailey Gifford is a very well-known fund management company uh, up in Scotland, um, uh, active manager, very successful, recently been given a lot of grief um, as the sponsor for probably the premier book festival, uh, certainly in Scotland, uh, attached to the fringe. Uh, because it buys, it has um, shares in in Shell, um, and uh, a lot of people have got a lot of publicity around saying, "Look, you know, how can we have um, you know someone that invests in these fossil fuel companies uh, being at the core of um, of what is a very significant event?" Um, 
you know, conveniently ignoring the fact that the investment in the arts um, generally in the UK is probably at an all-time low, and uh, without them, they wouldn't sustain be sustainable at all. So, so there's a bit of that stuff going on, and it's easy. This is all good clickbait stuff, right? So it's all easy stuff to to have a go at. Abby, you bring up a couple of things, Ben. One is the pressure that energy companies have from investors and from the public at large. And uh, I think that that's very real, although there's some pushback in the United States where certain red states are punishing banks who refuse to lend to fossil fuels. And so there's a little bit of that. But by and large, there is pressure on the part of investors to energy companies to at least develop a strategy for the transition. Uh, so that's that's definitely there. The second thing you brought up is the purpose and ethical, I would call it uh, ethical direction of the staff and the team. And there, there are two different categories. There's the new younger generation who very much care about the climate change specific ethical stances that a company is, is making before they decide to work there. But there's also the people who've been working there for 35, 40 years doing fossil fuels or doing things that are, and that I think is both harder because they are, they're already entrenched in the organization. And for them, I think that they're torn. The new people, they can choose to work for Shell or BP or Exxon as they wish, and it's a binary choice. But if you've worked at these companies for a long time, how do you reconcile an emerging view that the future is going to be different with your past, which taken in the taken in the current political environment is not uh, is supporting fossil fuels and caused some of this climate change? And I I feel like this conflict, if you will, is actually something that is important in M and A, which mm. is. If you are an oil and gas company looking to expand into renewables and you're thinking about an M&A transaction, the culture of the target is very different from the culture of your existing team. Your existing yeah. team arguably is the villain in the narrative created by the target. Um, and so integration there is an inordinately complicated and, and intricate thing because you have people who are sitting on opposite sides of the table who actually may have different views about climate change and about how to solve it and and the ethical content of it. And it's really, I think that if anything, that is a underappreciated area of, of discussion in M&A transactions. It's interesting. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I love your view on this in a minute. I, I suppose my only comment on, on that is, is where where would these people meet, right? They're not going to meet at the sort of, if you like, the E&P stage, whether that's in renewable or they, or because they, they live in their own little specialist world. If I'm a, if I'm a wind farm uh, engineer, I'm going to continue to be a wind farm engineer. Um, and the question about whether I'm happy to be bought or, or sell myself to, uh, to a, a fossil fuel firm um, is a different one. Uh, and maybe there's a bit of justification around saying, well, we're contributing to making that business um, or kind of transforming that business to, to, to one that, 
that that meets the sustainability challenges that we all face. I think in terms of the face-to-face -face engagement, it's probably further downstream, possibly, you know, so in, into the administration space, into the enabling functions area, maybe into the, even if, there, if there's some sort of retail customer-facing type environment, that's maybe where they start to meet those people. But if you like, otherwise, it's a sort of horizontal integration where, you know, you're not going to have that much connection across the piece beyond the question about whether I want to do this or not. Dave, what do you think? on this question of ethics and and working together i think not meeting is a is the problem um so yes yeah, actually yeah for the for the acquired renewables business imagine they've been bought by a, a fossil fuel a perceived fossil fuel business then the challenge is you're you're not meeting the people so you're not really getting to get that um acceptance of those who, who those people are and then you're not integrating other than potentially the back office, corporate communications, you know, yeah. maybe H HRIT finance. And there, you know, the problem with any acquisition in that situation is you need lots of goodwill on the acquired business to say, actually, we've got we've got a different way of working. It may not be better or worse, but we've got a back office that we're going to support you with now. If those people are, are cautious, are... Uh, a bit worried about the future um, in the fossil fuels business, they're going to look at all that change and see it negatively. You know, when something goes wrong, the default will be, ah, this is what it's like to be in a fossil fuel business. Whereas yeah. actually that's, you know, it's, it's not related to that. It's just a bigger business, I imagine, and it'll have a different way of working. Yeah, very interesting. Abby, I had a question for you. I, I, you know, I, I suppose that experience of, of long-term employees having to reconsider what they've done who they've worked for and and some, somehow reconcile that with their own personal situation maybe with the the perception of their grandchildren and their children in terms of what they're doing and who they're doing and, and we've all had uncomfortable conversations I suspect with with regard to that and um, what fascinates me though is that you know it's interesting the sector seems to be well, the, the, my very brief experience of the sector um seems to be full of people who've been there for a long time, right? It's a really long tenure. Um, it, partly probably because it's such a specialist little area that, uh, very massive industry, but one where you're not, there aren't necessarily such easily transferable skills out. The training was obviously fabulous, right? Without question. I think all three, or certainly the, the two European majors and the, and the US majors are well known for looking after their folk, training them really well, giving them good career paths to progress down. Um, so all those reasons, all those things are, are good. And so that, but that whole long-term thing, you know, we're investing in, in, you know, seven years of reserves and all that measurement of, you know, how much you got out in the field still, and therefore what can you still do? All points to a really long-term perspective. You know, it'd be interesting how yeah. the quarterly reporting works on the basis of that alone, because it's not that fascinating as a sector in the past. It is has been the last two years, probably because the price has gone all over the place. But generally, it's pretty stable, right? You know what demand looks like, or you have done it until now. So suddenly, we're now going to a marketplace where all that really long-term planning and, and perspective and investment for the future is being disrupted by some very short-term challenges and opportunities. And I'm wondering what, what that's doing to the sector. Do you think that's causing some of this change? Um, it's hard to say, obviously. I, I do think there's something you mentioned about the long-term planning. I mean, the, the fossil fuel industry, historically, there's a joke that Exxon used to say that they evaluate their investments on geologic time. Yeah. yeah. Sort of an allusion to how oil and gas is formed, but they made long-term investments. But now what you know, to your point, they're they're now looking at in the long run a transition to cleaner fuels that renders a lot of their sort of historical assets uh, 
obsolete potentially. But I think that, you know, one of the areas of cultural challenge within all these firms in varying degrees, and specifically as it applies to M&A, is the fact that you have competition for resources between the cash generating old fossil fuels and the cash using new fossil fuels. And there are two dynamics. One is there's all the growth is in a lot of the new fossil stuff, but all the cash is coming out of the old fossil stuff. So you literally have a, you know, the existing generation taking the money that they're generating and putting it into a, an industry that's totally new and largely unfamiliar with that, to them. And you also, on top of just where the growth is going to be, you have this ethical challenge. Basically, the people taking the money are simultaneously happy to take fossil fuel money to reinvest in clean energy. This is within the organization. But at the same time, sort of holding their nose, right? Because they know all this cash is, uh, from an environmental perspective, blood money that came out of you know, the carbon that's being put into the planet. So it, I think that there's this continual tension. Now, a few firms, Orsted is an example, that has gone, they've basically said, we are a clean energy company, no questions asked. Everything else is legacy. And the, and the leadership of the firm is the new energy, the clean energy folks. Uh, Engie, which used to be Gas de France and, and, and Suez, also has sort of made this transition where they position themselves primarily as a renewable player, even though you know they have a long history as part of Gas de France. Others, Shell, BP, are straddling the two. They want to become, you know, they want to be environmentally sensitive and climate change sensitive, but they really haven't haven't uh, picked. They're, I don't want to call them fence sitters, but they're trying to have the best of both, where they want to continue to generate the cash and invest in fossil fuels and at the same time invest in clean energy. And how long you can do that and how that transition happens, I think, is a big question. David? I just wanted to explain um, for the listeners a bit about Orsted, because you just mentioned that, Abe, and that, that was one of the interesting things reading about before the podcast, where just the highlights are it's a Danish energy company. Uh, 2009, 85% of their revenues came from non-renewable sources, fossil fuels. Um, uh, and this leading Danish energy provider decided, actually, we're just going to reimagine ourselves. And they did it through M&A. So they sold uh, their legacy fossil fuel business, bought all the renewable businesses, such that in 2021, only 10% of their business was for non-renewables. Everything else was primarily solar and wind. Um, and so it's a, a, a fantastic case study of how you can reinvent yourself through M&A. Um, but it does go back to all these questions we had before about actually those assets they've sold, other people are running them and still managing them. You know, what happened to them? Yeah, fascinating, really fascinating. And, and, and what's interesting about that for me is they, you know, the fact that they are Scandinavian, it might suggest that they've got a shareholder base that's really up for that, right? Whereas I think in other parts of the world, that's a much harder uh, persuasion to make. Abe, what do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think this. I think that the the Nordic countries and their national oil companies have bought into this earlier. Yeah. Now, to their credit, you find extraordinary examples: Saudi Aramco and others, also really investing in this transition in an aggressive way. And so, I think you see examples everywhere. 
Some have taken the Orsted path where they've literally gotten rid of the old stuff to buy new things. Others are taking the cash from the old stuff to invest in new. You sort of see that shell and BP transition. And then, uh, and then, then you have people who are holding the fort, if you will, mm -hmm. and saying, look, we are what we are. And if in, in, in one day, if investors don't want to invest in us, that's fine. But we're not going to, if investors wanted to invest in a solar company, they should go find a pure play solar company to go invest in. And that's perfectly fine. But we shouldn't necessarily change our stripes uh, to do that. And I think that that's probably now in, a, in the minority. You know, for the likes of ExxonMobil, for the likes of Shell and BP, you know, they look at their stakeholder base, their shareholder base in probably a slightly different way, which is that, you know, the folk who are buying petrol at their stations are also the folk who've got some of their shares in their pension funds. It, it's a co more complex picture. It goes beyond sort of the the somewhat clean aspect of return, if you like, which you know even investors, even pension funds are looking at, obviously from the point of view where they where they stick their their funds. But it goes more to what's the perception of us in the marketplace from our customers as well. I suspect the further you get removed from that customer base, which is you know volatile and has a has a view, and that view might quite quite rapidly change the fortunes of your business. The further you get away from that, perhaps the easier it is to to perhaps stick your head in the sand and say, you know what, invest or don't invest, we don't care. Uh, right, I think we're almost at the end. Anything to wrap up on, Abby? Anything you wanted to conclude with regard to this this particular chat? I think, you know, broadly speaking, the one thing that keeps hitting me is how do you manage cultural shift in a time of disruption in industries, right? So the same thing that's happening in energy is happening or has happened in other industries around history. And I think it merits, there's probably an area of study to dive into around how do the ones who make that transition well manage their culture and people. Think of something as simple as Blockbuster. Uh, you guys, I don't know if you guys had that in the UK. Indeed. But uh, Blockbuster used to, you know, the skills of the people and the executives and what they were good at was all driven around renting VHS tapes. And uh, they too saw what Netflix saw, but decided not to make the transition or made it very late. Whereas I think Netflix really saw that their legacy model wasn't going to work. Now, I think that transition is something that is probably the most, one of the more difficult transitions to do strategically for a company and especially, you know, using M&A to do it because you have, you know, different groups of people with different cultures and different values, all sort of competing for resources and control. And uh, it's one of the great stories in uh, in business, I think. Thanks, Abby. David, final thoughts? I agree with Abby. The, the cultural side of things is really interesting. And I think the challenge, as you say, is the same that other industries have faced and other organizations face. You know, how do you drive cultural change? Well, great communication internally and having these debates and these arguments openly in the organization so that you can try and get some kind of consensus and um, and it will go through the, the the head of uh heads of everybody's on the board of these companies as well as everyone who's an employee and so having that open discussion to say we all recognize it and we we have our thought on it is i think um the place to start Fantastic. thanks very much good conversation guys appreciate it we'll see you soon thank you thanks ben 
Thanks very much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments, or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks also to Sarika for providing the music. See you soon.